by Paul Scott, dark, sleek, and youthful in his shirt sleeves. We shook hands. Now look here, Richard, Hyam began. We represent a lot of successful authors, big names, Arthur C. Clarke, Morris West, T.H. White. Sometimes we get interest from the film people. Paul and I don't have time to deal with them. Robin Denniston says you know a few film people. I swallowed hard and said, uh, a, a few, yes. My brother was an actor under contract to the rank organisation. Hyam looked at Paul Scott, smiled. We'll give it a try, shall we? See what happens. Was he mad? Was I? Scarcely believing my luck, I walked down Dean Street holding four books. I'd been given a week to write 500-word reports on each one's suitability to be made into a film. If my reports were satisfactory, I'd be given the job. There was just one problem. During the same week, I was due to be married a biggish wedding from my mother's house in Essex. Suddenly, I had four books to read and write reports on while on honeymoon. Something or someone had to give. Unsurprisingly, the honeymoon was less romantic than my new wife or I had expected, but I got the job. And so, in April 1958, I began working for David Hyam Associates on a salary of £12 a week. Situated in an old building in Soho, their offices were reached by climbing an ancient wooden staircase which creaked beneath your every step. My office was on the top floor, the same as Hyams and Paul's, so I was free to look in on them if I had a problem. Every week there were letters from the story departments of the big American film studios like Columbia and Fox inquiring about this or that new title. I quickly discovered that because I worked for a top literary agency, film people just assumed I knew what I was talking about, even if I didn't. I decided to write personal letters to the heads of all the studio story departments and independent production companies, introducing myself and suggesting a meeting. Before I sent out the letters, I thought I ought to check with Hyam. David said, ask Paul. Paul said, I should do what you think best. If you get in a fix, come and talk to me. Sometimes Paul would take me to lunch at L'Epicure in Frith Street, where he'd laid down his ground rules. An agent's duty was, he said, to read every page of every client's manuscript, make the best financial arrangements possible, and be a hundred percent certain those arrangements are kept. And remember, Richard, an agent's enthusiasm for a client's work can be the difference between making a sale and not making one. As well as being a fine agent, Paul was already a respected writer who would later have huge successes with his Raj Quartet and the wonderful Staying On. I was incredibly lucky to work for him. Within six months, I was able to meet most of the main and middling producers looking for material to turn into films. There was even the odd deal. One of my first was with a seedy Hungarian gentleman who bought a £150 option on a book called Strip Death Naked, about a private detective investigating a murder in a nudist colony. I could see where he was coming from. I was less successful with Paul Brickhill's The Great Escape. The book had received favourable attention, but the film rights remained unsold. Then I received a phone call from a man I'd never heard of saying he wanted to talk to me urgently about buying the film rights. Within five minutes of sitting down, he made me an offer of £5,000. I should have been sceptical, but I was thrilled. In those days, not many producers had that kind of money. I hedged and said I'd have to speak to Mr. Brickhill. He handed me an envelope. Inside was a letter confirming his offer and a cheque for £5,000. 
Hyam called Brickhill, who was disappointed with only £5,000, and wanted to know from me if it was as good an offer as he could expect. I gave my assurance it was. Later I discovered the man with the £5,000 cheque was a front for the hugely successful American film company called the Mirish Corporation. Mirish had a twelve-pick pact, as Variety called it, with United Artists, for whom they would make The Great Escape, starring Steve McQueen. When Brickhill found out I'd advised him badly, he was understandably furious. In the end, Mirish generously gave him a percentage of the film's profits, which turned out to be huge. It taught me to be less trusting and always, always to do my homework. A few weeks after the Brickhill fiasco, Hyam handed me a thick envelope. Put a wet towel around your head and read this, he said. What is it? An agreement for the rights to Tim White's The Once and Future King, David said. Some crazy Americans mean to make a musical about King Arthur. Mad, of course. The crazy Americans turned out to be Alan J. Lerner.